is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let's know the world. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. Hi. Hi, guys. It's been a long Hello. time. Flawless segue from our, <laughs> from our outro that we just recorded, and they're now recording out of sequence. This, this is the, the Curbsiders. Paul, what, what do we do on this show? We don't know. <laughs> I'm not even sure anymore. <laughs> this is, we interview experts to bring us practice-changing knowledge and clinical pearls for you, the listener. That was backwards. Yeah, I don't have to read off now. And just to remind the audience, uh, because we believe in wellness, uh, we we spend the first five ten minutes uh, kind of messing around. Sometimes fifteen. With our, uh, yeah, <laughs> and then and then we move into the topic. There are timestamps with each show, so if you don't like that part, then you can skip it. But I think uh, for your own for your own wellness, join us. Uh, you'll get some good book recommendations and whatnot. And anyway, today we are recording live at. Uh, ACP 2018 in New Orleans, and our guest is Dr. Nina Mingioni. Nina Mingioni graduated from NYU School of Medicine and completed internal medicine residency training and a chief residency at Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. Currently, she is a general internist and a clinical associate professor of medicine at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. She is the director of undergraduate medical education for the Department of Medicine and internal medicine clerkship director at Sidney Kimmel Medical College. Currently, she is transitioning into her new role as the director of the core clinical clerkships. She is also an associate internal medicine program director who primarily focuses on medical education. She is interested in primary care medicine and undergraduate medical education. And the ACP asked her to be a uh, one of their highlights, give one of their highlights talks at this year's meeting, which means that as she as she explains towards the end, she's been to about 12 sessions. Uh, this uh, I think she has one more session to go to, but she's been to 11 or 12 sessions so far where she went there. She took notes, she tried to make slides, and she's giving a PowerPoint presentation to a right. giant audience later today. 15 hours of sessions, that's yeah, bonkers. Right. So, but she, uh, selfishly, uh, we benefited because she had a lot of great clinical pearls to offer us, and that's what you're about to hear. Here we are with Dr. Nina Mingioni, and right. we've, we've agreed we're going to be calling you Nina today. Yes, and even though you're much more important than at least me at this table, I don't want to. I don't want to put down. <laughs> I don't want to put down Dr. Paul Williams. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, Paul's very important. Stuart, Stuart no. is too. No. And, but but uh, today we're going to be talking about some more highlights from the ACP uh, meeting in New Orleans from 2018. But before we get to those, we just wanted uh, the audience to get to know you. So I wanted to say, can you give them a one-liner, kind of give them a flavor of your personality, who you are. All right, so I'm a 41-year-old, proud general internist and a medical educator. I'm a mother of two. Um, I'm a pragmatic realist and uh, an adventurous eater. Okay, <laughs> an adventurous eater. Or at least you used to be. At least I used to be, but we'll no get longer. into that later. <laughs> <laughs> my my one-liner includes the fact that I have very weird eating habits, which Stuart, Stuart can attest to having worked with me. Uh, yes. It, yeah. <laughs> his, his breakfast is like kale and beans and a little bit of milk and I don't know what that is. I think I might be validated uh, based on the, the teaser that, that probably, Nina gave us. Probably. Uh, so, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Stuart or Paul, did you have any, any follow-up questions? 
I'll ask my usual. Um, any book recommendations does not have to be medically based if you don't want to. So my uh, reading time has gone to nothing and mainly because I tend to binge on books and stop sleeping until I finish. <laughs> so <laughs> what are you reading? Um, well, so actually the most recent adult book I read was um, by Lindsay Adario. She is a uh, wartime photojournalist. And this was her memoir that came out a couple of years ago and it was absolutely fantastic. Um, I dabble in photography a little bit, so this actually spoke to me quite a okay. bit, and she's amazing. Um, very brave, and more so than I could ever be. Um, so, and then the most recent book I read, period, just finished last week, which I highly recommend to people who've got kids, is Wonder um, mm. by Palacio, right. by yeah. R.J. Palacio, and it was fantastic. So I read it with my seven-year-old, and it was great. That was a great, great book. There's actually a uh, sequel to that as well. So. It's actually not a sequel. It's like a little side story. Yeah. Because we got it and I was disappointed. It's not a sequel. <laughs> yeah, it's from a, someone else's perspective, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, from the bully's perspective. That's right. That's right. So to be clear, our audience shouldn't waste their time with the so-called sequel that Stuart was recommending. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> no, Definitely read the original. Okay. Okay. This is like for good recommendations. <laughs> Stuart. Uh, Stuart. Yeah. In, in, what's the best advice you've either given or received as a, as a teacher or learner? A lot of ors there. Um, so as a learner, and I'm not sure who, who I heard this from first, but I've heard some from some pretty respected faculty members to remember to spend some time on me, which I've uh, pretty much blown off until uh, fairly recently. And I have to say now I give my learners the same advice um, to establish exercise habits early and to stick with them and um, do something for just yourself and keep a hobby if that's at all possible while having a busy internal medicine career. That has been a big theme, I think, for everybody at this meeting, and uh, certainly, certainly for the ACP themselves. Like all the all the recent papers they're they're putting out on the topic. Yeah, focus on burnout. Yes. Well, let's let's move into the fun learning that we did at this conference. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about you? You went to the athlete, the talk titled "Athlete as a Patient," and what what did you learn there that you think would be useful for the audience to to know? So, yeah, so this was a very interesting session, actually. It was led by um, Dr. Gary Dorsheimer, who is a uh, physician to the Phillies and the Eagles, and I'm from Philly, so this means a lot to me. Of course, I will never see a competitive athlete as a patient. Um, but it was, you know, a little bit of stardom there, so it was good. Um, so a couple of things um, he did talk about that I thought was interesting is, um, since I am a primary care doctor, I do see... Um, uh, younger folks, mainly uh, high school, um, I'm sorry, not high school, but uh, college athletes still come in for, for uh, pre-participation physicals. And he reviewed the guidelines that came out of in 07 by AHA that talked about the uh, various aspects of history and physical um, that should be done on those folks. And mainly history, checking for exertional symptoms, syncope, things like you would imagine, um, history of murmurs and family history of any issues in sudden cardiac death. And then um, specifically doing physical exam, listening for murmurs, um, and doing femoral pulses, looking at Mar uh, Marfan's physiology, um, blood pressure, things like that. I should say Marfan's uh, morphology, not physiology, sorry. Um, and then the outcome of that uh, sort of blurb was is that routine AKGs are not recommended um, actually for the uh, for high school or for college athletes. And that's because there is such a um, high prevalence of uh, various adaptations uh, of an athlete's heart that gives you EKG abnormalities um, that somebody who's not used to looking at athletes' EKGs will not be able to pick up. So EKGs were not useful um, in that population whatsoever and should not be performed. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm used to looking at like the EKG of a 70 or 80 year old with like multimorbidity and a sick heart. So yeah, Correct. when I see a normal heart, I'm like, what is this? This person's dying. Like, what is happening here? So what about for the older adults? 
So there's not as many, uh, there's no, definitely no consensus recommendations for the older adults. There was a paper that came out in 15 in British Journal of Sports Medicine that looked at uh, recreational athletes. And this was immediately relevant to me and my uh, years burnt out. Um, I am not uh, much of an athlete, but I do try to exercise. I should say that for the, uh, for the record. Um, can I call it older adults, please? I mean, that's just adults. Can we just say adults? Like, yeah, I don't think older needs to be a qualifier for a 35 year old. That's just. I have to say, as I get older, what I consider middle-aged has been shifting up. And I hear that from my, they talk about that, you know, the, uh, the very senior faculty talk about how the geriatric population age line keeps moving up. Yeah, I, but uh, yeah. I find that for middle-aged, I consider myself very young still. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, like having your midlife crisis at 70, I feel like is appropriate. I agree. There's no, I have no time for midlife crisis. It's uh, not, not on the agenda. Um, so this specific paper looked at 785 individuals who were 35 to 65 years old. Mean age was 46.8, um, but they were 70, 73% men. Mm. And they engaged in high intensity sports. Um, so they did full history, full physical, and about 14.3% required some sort of additional testing uh, based on what the researchers determined to be appropriate. So either they were high risk for coronary disease or had very high cholesterol, something like that. So they found that about um, 5% had abnormal EKGs um, of some sort. Um, and out of all the people that got tested um, for various things, they actually found that there were only three people of that cohort of 785 that needed to be excluded from physical activity based on, um, based on what they found. And all three were identified based on their abnormal baseline EKGs, actually. Um, so whoever needed echoes or stress tests or whatever else, all of those were actually normal. So it was actually the resting EKG that identified all the people with issues. So these are not guidelines. This is a single paper that came out. This is, you know, not the highest studied population, I suppose. Um, uh, but the, uh, Dr. Dorsheimer said, maybe consider an EKG in your recreational athletes. Of course, again, this is not guidelines, um, but this is something to keep in mind. Okay. And there was a, I, I, you told us there was a part on the female athlete triad, which we're not, we're not calling it that anymore. So what's the update there? Correct. So I actually thought that was very interesting because uh, for the last several years, I've been reading about female athlete triad, which is um, generally was considered to be women who are um, calorically restricting in some way and are exercising and they can get amenorrhea, oligomenorrhea, and they generally have some alteration in bone density. So though not always, sometimes they'll have like low normal bone density or, you know, frank osteopenia and sometimes even osteoporosis. So there was a um, consensus statement that came out from the international Olympic Committee um, that actually uh, recognize that this is not a syndrome that's limited to women only and that men are also uh, susceptible to this and they uh, renamed it relative energy deficiency in sports which I like because it's a uh, it's a very it's a it's a self descriptive syndrome, right. so I think you can figure out you know what it means based on that. But what was interesting is that there are a whole host of physiologic effects of this that clearly go beyond bone health and um, and gynecologic health, which I thought was really important to recognize. We had talked uh, several episodes ago with with Roz Kaplan, Doctor Kaplan, uh, also at Jefferson, about this, and she was pointing out to us that the the young male athlete is is at a higher risk um, for eating disorders as well, which is something I had not really ever heard or thought about before. Yeah, I think it's very important to recognize. Mm -hmm. 
so on to drug on to drug interactions and what uh, there was there was a talk on the what was it like the top drug interactions of 2018? Correct. Um, a lot of them were not necessarily from 2018, but there is always a list of top favorites, right? That we, you know, I, I like to be reminded once a year, you know, I think the more you get beaten over the head about these things, probably the best it is. Um, so warfarin is always on top of the list. And uh, I think everybody at this point knows about um, TMP sulfa. Um, increasing the INR. So apparently the mean increase in INR while on uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole was 1.76, which is quite Holy a bit. Cow. That's yeah, crazy. Right? Isn't that impressive? Hmm. And uh, what I did not realize is how much prednisone raises INRs. And in the one study they showed, uh, it was 1.24 increase in INR. Jeez. Yikes. I know. So that's, that's something to be aware of. And the third, I thought, really important nugget they mentioned was is that acetaminophen can raise INR as well. They didn't have a clean number to put with that, um, but specifically chronic acetaminophen use uh, greater than 1.5 gram a day can significantly increase INR. So those people... That much. 1.5 grams a day is not that much. So I prescribe that in my elderly patients quite routinely for mm-hmm. aches and pains. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Any other any other drug drug interactions that you wanted to highlight? I think that was anxiety provoking. You want to throw out there? <laughs> I need to make some phone calls. What else, well, what else are we messing up with uh, with drugs these days? So actually, there there was a good one. Um, so as a primary care doc, I love me some SSRIs and I prescribe them a lot. Um, I also love treating migraines and I treat those a lot with triptans. Um, and invariably, I get either a phone call from the pharmacist or those alerts that you get that pop up on EMR that I should not be seen on air, frequently ignore because they're always the same. Um, or I get letters from the insurance companies about the potential for serotonin syndrome um, when you combine SSRIs with triptans. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the evidence is looking like it's, it really was an overblown concern at this point. Um, so from the original literature that was um, examined by the FDA back, I guess it was 2007 or something like that. Um, they, I think, overdiagnosed serotonin syndrome. So more literature came out this year that um, the combination of the two is extremely unlikely to produce serotonin syndrome, which is really good for our patients yeah. and me. Um, and um, usually if there is a serotonin syndrome, it's because there's a third agent on board um, that also affects certain allergic pathways like a uh, tramadol or something to that extent. Um, and that would precipitate um, serotonin syndrome. So prescribe away. Triptans and SSRIs. <laughs> Avoid amitriptramadol. <laughs> I, we, we've had multiple shows where we talked about drug interactions or we've had a pharmacist friends on. And I think when we were talking about uh, specifically tors- the risk of torsades or QT prolongation, uh, our pharmacist friend Neil was saying like, yeah, actually it's multiple hits. Like, so you always want to look out for that. So when you're on the med list, if you're adding the third or fourth agent that's going to have a serotonin effect, then that's where you're going to get into trouble. And yeah, so I, I love talking about this stuff because I, f- I find that I just see so much like irresponsible prescribing. It drives me crazy. Yeah. I, I think agree. my biggest concern is when someone's seeing a psych- psychiatrist, they come back and they're on multiple serotoninergic meds. And then on top of that, they're probably on Cymbalta for some other reason too. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I see that like, yeah. I'm like, you're, you're on an SSRI and an SNRI and you're taking trazodone for sleep and tramadol for pain. This makes me really uncomfortable. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's hard in the trenches. Someone should do something thing. about that. Yes, and the, this is this is my therapy on air therapy right here. Their intake vitals like heart rate of like one twenty, and they're sweating. I know. That's a whole separate podcast. Right? Yes. 
<laughs> Let's move on to food as medicine so you could tell everybody why my weird eating habits are actually beneficial to me. So this was a, a really fascinating talk I attended by Michelle um, McMacken from NYU. Um, so she started off by saying that um, about 45% of uh, all Cardi- cardiometabolic mortality actually can be attributed to poor eating habits, which is a really scary thought. Um, and then she also, uh, she basically, she gave a nice overview of a lot of different evidence about what we should be eating in various diets, etc. And it basically all came down to a summary, like a single statement by a food writer, Michael Pollan, that basically goes something like this, eat food, not too much, and mostly plants. So, um, she said that basically when you look at the evidence for foods there, she called them green box foods, which are healthful foods, whole grains, legumes, fruits, veggies, not seeds. There's clearly unhealthful foods, which is processed meat, red meats, added sugar, you know, refined grains, ultra processed foods, etc. And then there was a big category of debatable, which gave me a big pause, um, which was poultry, eggs, dairy, and fish, which I traditionally consider healthy food. Um, so I was absolutely not happy to see that in the yellow box. Um, so the the one um, slide that she showed, and that sort of will segue into the microbiome talk that I attended, is that when they looked at, um, so again, with the, with the microbiome, uh, there's a lot of associations, not a lot of causality that's been proven yet, so they're still working on that. But they looked at uh, phosphatidylcholine um, that you get from eating a meat-based diet, and it gets converted to choline in the gut. And then when gut flora gets a hold of it, and um, Dr. Young from the microbiome talk will say, uh, gut microbiota, not flora, because they're not plants. Um, they convert it to, um, to TMA, which is trimethylamine, which then by liver gets converted to um, trimethylamine oxide. And uh, that is atherogenic, apparently. So intake of any meat is directly atherogenic, as it turns out. So I, I came into uh, the conference here in New Orleans on Wednesday, and my first stop was <laughs> dinner with some andouille gumbo. And I'm uh, sad to say that I've not eaten any uh, red meat since then. I, I had to have a little bit of fish along the way, but that's about it. And I, uh, I've had like lost appetite for meat and probably will last till the end of this week. I'm not sure I will <laughs> permanently give up my meat eating habits. Um, but it certainly reinforced at least my personal recent efforts um, uh, for eating a lot more uh, legumes. I already eat a lot of fruits and veggies, but I will have to look at my uh, dairy and egg habit. Was was the speaker's list of disclosures like, I am a vegetarian, I may be biased against all types <laughs> of meat? Um, no, it wasn't. So okay. I, she actually gave a, a, a well-balanced talk, I thought. Okay. so. But uh, she... I think she made a pretty compelling point. Again, I, I think it's not realistic for most of us to eat that kind of diet. I, I think it's too much of a change, to be honest with you. Maybe eventually in, in better human, you know, some future, we actually eat that But way, avoiding but. like, I, I think everybody is like feeling somewhat, at least maybe I'm projecting, I probably am. But yeah, if you're eating, thing. Paul, let, correct me if I'm wrong. If, <laughs> if you're eating eggs, chicken, fish, you probably feel better that if you're eating like bacon, ribs, Things like that. You you think you're doing better. You mean spiritually or like physically? Better? No, no. I just mean like you think you. Most <laughs> yes. people assume you're that's right. better, but this is in the yellow category of maybe Correct. maybe harmful. Correct. So is that based on like observational data? Did she give any like resources? So or is it just- all the she she reviewed some literature. So all the studies, of course, are very small. A lot of it is just suggested data, not direct causation. So mm-hmm. I think a lot more work needs to be done in the area. Um, with that said, some of the data was compelling enough that I was like, uh, again, I'm not willing to permanently 
completely give up my uh, meat eating. My seven-year-old eats a hamburger at least once a week, and that's like <laughs> a requirement for peace at home. So, um, you know, I, I think stay tuned is the message here. Um, what was interesting is that she did not specifically recommend like ketogenic diet for weight loss or anything of that sort. It right. really specifically was, you know, plant-based diet is what it looks what looks to be the most beneficial at this point. Was there any comment on non-GMO and on organic? She did not. She did not touch upon uh, GMOs and organics, which I think was wise. I agree. Any specific tips in terms of patient counseling that came up? Yes, I actually thought um, that was a really good point. And I do a lot of patient counseling, and I always need, you know, I'm always looking for phrases that make it sort of more relevant to patients. Um, so the the one thing that she recommended that I thought was really good is not to counsel patients in terms of nutrients, but to talk about specific foods. So she would say, like, don't tell them to, like, you know, decrease animal protein. Just say, like, hey, you should eat less meat and more, you know, whole grains and more legumes and more um, beans to get your protein content. So I thought that was very, very helpful. The other um, thing I thought was uh, very, very relevant is to make sure that they make very specific goals. So instead of thinking like, oh, I will drink less soda to say something like, oh, I will give up a soda at lunch and instead I will drink water. Mm -hmm. So very, very specific attainable things that you can hold patients to. I like our, and I'm probably going to mess his name up, but Dr. L. Yemen it was a functional medicine doctor we had on way back. And he, he told us that he counsels his patients, like things that come out of a bag, box, or can tend to be processed. Try to get 80% of your food from something other than a bag, box, or can. That's a great And that's advice. kind of forcing you to eat whole foods. But, you know, technically they could make the other 20% like all bacon. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe that's not specific <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually my specific diet. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing okay, Paul. Eight percent of the time. I think the last topic we had was was marijuana use, which is uh you know a favorite topic of the show. Yeah. <laughs> this was actually a marijuana podcast that turned into a a med ed podcast. So um so the reason why I went to marijuana talk is because uh it was uh, recently legalized for medicinal use in Pennsylvania where I work, and I know absolutely nothing about marijuana. And it's prescription. I definitely have patients who started asking um, my uh, my place of employment, which is the awesome uh, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, um, now has the Lambert Center for Study of Medicinal ca- uh, Cannabis and Hemp. So uh, I'm not sure, you know, I think it's mostly research driven at this point, but uh, they have been advertising enough that my patients ask about, you know, how do they go and get hooked up to get some medicinal marijuana. So I thought it'd be interesting to learn something about it. I was pleased to see um, the guy who runs the center at Jefferson as actually the main speaker, and his name is Charles Pollock. And he gave an interesting overview of um, the use of cannabis in the United States and also some history, which was uh, pretty impressive. So the, the couple of things I learned from that was is that um, so the main psychoactive compound uh, in cannabis is actually THC, which is delta-9 um, tetrahydrocannabinol. But the main um, medicinally related compound is actually cannabidiol, CBD. So there are two different things. And the, the two um, cannabis-related products that are available for use in the U.S. as the uh, FDA-approved compounds are both THC analogs, synthetic THC analogs, which is the psychoactive uh, compound, not the medicinal compound. And there are no CBD um, synthetic compounds. The other interesting uh, concept was is that 
all the medicinal effects traditionally associated with marijuana, you know, nobody's really sure what, what all, are all of the compounds that contribute to this because there's over 400 active compounds in marijuana leaf. And traditionally, people smoke the whole, you know, the, the flowers, the leaves or whatever, but it's using the whole plant. So there are a lot of terpenoids and flavonoids that contribute to the sort of the traditional or associated smell or taste of marijuana that uh, probably have some effects as well, but nobody's looking at those. So they actually call it the entourage effect. So uh, even though you may be looking at a single synthetic substance for its medicinal uses, uh, you're losing that entourage effect that comes with using the whole plant. The first time you said the entourage effect, I thought you were talking about the HBO series. And I was like, that seems... That's (laughs) That's exactly what I thought when he mentioned it. I had to look it up to be honest. I'm sorry, Paul. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. (laughs) I know that was your favorite show. So I... (laughs) Big big Piven head. Uh, any any follow-ups to that, guys? Uh, on the Any thoughts, Paul? Are you using this in your practice? No, not, I, I'm certainly being asked about it, but it's not something I'm either, either trained to prescribe, and I'm still a little bit dubious, um, as we discussed previously. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really tricky. Um, and again, some of the interesting things I didn't realize, I was like, well, like maybe there'll just be a doc who prescribes marijuana. I can just send them to that doc. But since there's no, like, there's no really synthetic compounds for stuff that we're looking for, um, and federally marijuana is still illegal. It's a category one substance. Um, so states made it legal. So you actually can still get arrested, I guess, for possession or, you know, mm-hmm. on federal charges. Um, so it gets pretty tricky. But even dosing gets, you know, really, really tricky. So yeah. uh, let me actually pull up my... We um, talked about that on one of our episodes. My notes on this. It's I like I never thought about this stuff. But, How many gummy bears are you supposed to prescribe? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So they, there is like, it's smoked, it's vaporized, there's edibles, there's also tinctures and oils. And the oils is the ones, ones where you can control THC to CBD ratio. Mm-hmm. And they really make it so that there's very little THC, the psychoactive stuff, and a lot more of CBD. But the Oils is the one that people will use in kids with seizures and things of that sort. But for your patients, you know, what do you prescribe? One puff with me? I mean, like, what yeah. do you prescribe? You know, so it's and and the uh, the other problem is that there's high variations of of active compounds, crop to crop, batch to batch. So there's no standardization. So I think you know, stay tuned. Um, I think the evidence, you know, I would love to say the evidence is forthcoming, but it probably won't be coming out of the United States because apparently it's nearly impossible to get. Um, the plants for research because it's a class one so category one right. substance and apparently all plants come from a single growing facility in mississippi um that's federally controlled um so a lot of the research actually actually is happening overseas where it's easier to get yeah i have a couple of patients anecdotally that either either ordering cbd oil mail order or just making their own which i don't I don't <laughs> ask too much about and you know they they say that they're doing great with it but i think the the possible exciting use for it is maybe to transition patients off of opioids. Like I think that's something that we've all been sort of thinking about as a possible use of this of this drug. But it's I just feel like I still don't know enough about it as much as we've talked about it. Correct. So I think this gave me a little bit more insight into the challenges associated with, but definitely brought me no closer to uh, prescribing it uh, medicinally. <laughs> right. <laughs> not that I'm not. I'm looking to get into that, please. <laughs> the, the the fact that it's a a class one or category one substance. When we had talked with Dr. Donald Abrams about uh, about this topic, he was saying that they can only study the adverse effects of marijuana. So all the all the evidence about like what it does to help people has to just be observational studies, like sort of like as a piggyback onto the adverse effects study that they were doing. 
Correct. And I guess it's again, it's really difficult to study because there's so many different substances yeah. within the actual plant. So it's difficult to figure out which exact substance has which medicinal effect. So it's it's going right. to be pretty tricky. And that that's why the the few times it's been mentioned on the show, the the expert has recommended whole plant. <laughs> so whole plant. And the other thing was that people should know that if they're prescribing marijuana to their patients, the when they smoke marijuana, it's like two and a half minutes, it starts to reach a level in the bloodstream versus when they ingest it, it's two and a half hours later. So uh, <laughs> Dr. Abrams was saying he had give, you know, he would, he would prescribe it like his, his little old lady patient would go to the bud tender <laughs> and they would give her a brownie yeah. and she would eat it and start like tripping two and a half hours later. He recommends they take like have, you know, they would use whole plant and smoke so they know like they can feel the effects and they can sort of titrate better. Just some practical tips for marijuana. I think it's relevant because I think in Pennsylvania, my understanding is it's the only thing that's going to be allowed to be dispensed is going to be edibles. I don't think that there's going right. to be any any product to be smoked. So it's that that counseling will be important. We have to reframe this conversation. I cannot participate if there's going to be a bud tender. I just I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't mean this specific conversation. You mean like the national like, yeah, the conversation, conversation about, about marijuana. prescribing it. Like I just okay. I need to so, deal with something like a professional. I can't so say your problem is the the nomenclature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just change the, the term bud tender to something else. Yeah, absolutely. That's all it takes. I'm sure Stuart can think of something. I a, wish that he would not of a, a more suitable pun. Uh, to to come up with that name. I don't know. Okay. Well, Nina, this this has been awesome. Thank you so much. And I know you worked very hard to go to all these sessions and put together all these pearls. I like to think it's for us, but I know it was really <laughs> the ACP asked you to do that and uh, they are much more important than us. So, But do you have any favorite take-home points you want to leave the audience with or anything you'd like to plug or ask of the audience? Um, no, I mean, I think ACP is an awesome conference. They're not paying me to say this. Uh, it's probably my, actually, it is my favorite uh, clinical conference that I always try to come to. Um, so I'm going to 12 different sessions, which is a ton. Um, I know I'm, uh, I went to 10 in the last two days, so I'm pretty burnt out. <laughs> I have, I went to 7 a.m. this morning. Oh, God bless you. One more to go. Um, so uh, definitely try to attend. I think uh, it's an incredible experience and to also see a lot of other internists, general internists who are here um, to learn and to run into old colleagues and old friends, which also have been really great. Um, but otherwise, yes, eat plants. Uh, do not eat dewy sausage. And uh, But when you see me next week, I'll probably be eating a burger or something. <laughs> <laughs> With your seven-year-old. <laughs> With my seven-year-old. Well, it's in quality of life counts for something too. So Absolutely. Exactly. This has been another episode of The Curbside. It sure has. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food and subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. You can email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. What are you reading off of there? My brain hole. Okay, got it. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good morning. <laughs> and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams and good whatever. Good time. Oh, hi, Chris. And thanks and thank you to our producers for this episode, Dr. Christopher Chu and Hannah Abrams, and to all of our correspondents who helped produce the show and the show notes. Our social media team is Hannah Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbatelli on Instagram, and Christopher Chu Man Chu on Facebook. <laughs> I'm just going to say Chu Man Chu as many times as possible now. Sounds good to me. Be-